whose thirst to be hanged the commander concluded. There was a burst of applause which mercilessly tormented his eardrums. Artyom raised his head with difficulty and looked from side to side. Only one of his eyes could open. The other was totally swollen. The interrogators had tortured him with all their might. He couldn't hear very well either. It was as though sounds were making their way to him through a thick layer of cotton wool. It felt like his teeth were all still in place. But what would he need his teeth for now anyway? Again, the same light-colored marble, the normal stuff. This white marble was already setting his teeth on edge. Massive iron chandeliers on the ceiling. Once, probably electrical fixtures. Now, there were candles in them, and the ceiling above them was completely black. There were only two such chandeliers burning in the whole station. One at the very end, where a wide staircase stood the other where Artyom was standing in the middle of the hall, on the steps of a little bridge that connected to a side passage that led to another metro line. Frequent semi-circular arches, almost completely unnoticeable columns. There was a lot of free space. What kind of station is this? The execution will take place tomorrow at 5 o'clock in the morning at the Verskaya station. The fat man who was standing next to the command, commanded, or the commandant specified. Like his superior, he was dressed in a green camouflage, but in a black uniform with brilliant yellow buttons. There were black berets on both of them, but not as big as the crudely made not as big or as crudely made as those on the soldiers in the tunnel. There were lots of depictions of eagles in the three-pronged swastika and slogans and mottos drawn with a great with great care in gothic letters. Diligently trying to focus on the blurred words, Artyom read, The metro is for Russians. Swarthy people to the surface. Death to the rat ears. There were others, too, with more abstract contents. March forward to the last battle for the greatness of the Russian spirit. With fire the sword, we will establish true Russian order. Then there was something from Hitler. A healthy body means a healthy spirit. There was one inscription that especially made an impression on him. It was underneath a skillfully drawn portrait of a brave soldier with a powerful jaw and a strong chin, and a rather resolute-looking woman. They were depicted in profile so that the man was shielding the woman. Each man is a soldier, and each woman is the mother of a soldier. The slogan went. All these inscriptions and pictures had somehow absorbed more of Artyom's attention than the wor words of the commandant, or of the com commandant. Right in front of him, behind a cordon, the crowd was restless. There weren't many people here, and they were all dressed rather bland blandly and basically in quilted jackets and greasy overalls. There were hardly any women to be seen. And if this reflected reality, there wouldn't be many more soldiers in the future. 
Ardeon's head fell to his, to his chest. He hadn't the strength to hold it upright anymore. And if there hadn't been two broad-shouldered escorts in berets supporting him under the arm, he would have fallen already. He felt faint again, and his head had begun to spin, and he couldn't manage to say anything ironic. Artyom had the impression that they would now turn him inside out in front of all these people. A stupid indifference about what would happen to him gradually crept up on Artyom. Now he only had an abstract interest in what was surrounding him, as though none of this was happening to him. But he was just reading a book about it. The fate of the main character interested him, of course, but if he was killed then he could just pick another book off the shelf, only with a happy ending. At first, he had carefully beaten a length by patient and strong people. No, at first, he had been carefully beaten at length by patient and strong people while others asked him clever and judicious questions. The room had been predictably covered with disturbing yellow-colored tiles, making it easy to wipe away blood. But it was impossible to get rid of its smell. To start off with, they taught him to call the gaunt man with slick, light hair and delicate features, who was leading the interrogation, Commandant. Then they taught him not to ask questions, but to answer them. Then they taught him to answer the questions accurately and to the point. Artyom couldn't understand how his teeth were still in his mouth though a few of them were seriously wobbly, and his mouth had a constant taste of blood in it. At first, he tried to justify himself, but it was explained to him that that wasn't worth it. Then he tried to stay silent, but he was quickly convinced that this, too, seemed to be the wrong thing to do. It was very painful. It is altogether a strange feeling when a strong man beats you over the head. It's not just pain, but some kind of hurricane which wipes all the thought from your mind and smashes your feelings to pieces. The real torture happens afterwards. After a while, Artyom finally understood what he needed to do. It was simple. He needed to manage the expectations of the Commandant the best way he could. If the Commandant asked whether Artyom was sent by Kuznetsky most, he had to just affirm that with, affirm that with a nod. It took less strength and the Commandant didn't wrinkle his Slavic nose at the response, and his assistance didn't hit him. The Commandant assumed that Artyom was sent with the aim of collecting military information and performing some kind of sabotage. He agreed again with a nod, and then the torturer rubbed his, and then the torturer rubbed his hands together with satisfaction, and Artyom had, had saved his second eye. But it was important not just to nod. He had to listen to exactly what the Commandant had asked, because if Artyom assented matentively, the mood would worsen and one if it worsened and one if his helpers and one of his helpers would try, for example, to break one of Artyom's ribs. After about an hour and a half of this unrushed conversation, Artyom couldn't feel his body anymore. He couldn't see very well. 
He could scarcely hear, and he understood almost nothing. He lost consciousness a few times, but they brought him back to his senses with ice water and ammonia. He must have been a very, no, he must have been a very interesting person to talk to. In the end, they had an absolutely false idea of who he was. They saw him as an enemy spy and a saboteur who had appeared in order to stab the Fourth Reich in the back and having decapitated the leadership to sow the seed of chaos and to prepare for an invasion. The ultimate goal was the establishment of an anti-national Caucasian Zionist regime over the whole of the metro system. Though Artyom generally understood little about politics, such a global aim seemed to him to be worthy, and so he told them that was true too. And it was good that he had agreed. Because of this, he still had all of his teeth. After the final details of the plot were revealed, they allowed Artyom to pass out. When he could open his eye one last time, the Commandant was already reading the sentence. The final formalities had barely been settled when the date of his departure from the world was announced to the public. And they pulled a black hood over his head and face, and his vision worsened dramatically. He could see nothing, and he was even more dizzy. He barely managed to stay standing for a minute and stopped struggling when a spasm seized his body, and he vomited right into his, onto his boots. The guard took a cautious step backwards, and the public rustled indignantly. For a moment, Artyom felt ashamed, and then he felt his head swimming and his knees buckled. A strong arm was holding up his chin, and he heard a familiar voice, which now seemed almost to come from a dream world. Let's go. Come with me, Artyom. It's all over. Get up, he said. But Artyom still couldn't find the strength to get up or even to lift his head. It was very dark, probably because of the hood. But how would he get off? No, get it off if his hands were tied at the, at the back. Getting it off was essential. To look to see if it was indeed the person he thought it was or if he was imagining it. The hood, Artyom managed to say, hoping the person would understand the black veil that had been over his eyes then disappeared, and Artyom saw Hunter in front of him. He had changed at all. He hadn't changed at all since the time Artyom had talked to him. A while back now, a whole eternity ago, at BDNKH. How had he got here? Artyom wearily moved his head and looked around. He was on the platform of the exact same station where he had where they had read his sentence. There were dead bodies everywhere. Only a few candles in one chandelier continued to smoke. The other chandelier was blown out. Hunter was holding the same pistol in his right hand that had so amazed Artyom the last time, having seemed so huge with its large silencer screwed onto its barrel and its impressive laser sight. A Stetchkin. The hunter was looking at Artyom anxiously and intentively. Is everything okay with you? Can you walk? Yes, probably. Artyom summoned his courage, but he was interested in something else at that moment. You're alive. 
Did everything work out for you? As you can see, Hunter smiled warily. Thanks for your help. But I didn't complete the task. Ardeon shook his head, and it was burningly painful, and he was filled with shame. You did everything you could, Hunter. Patted him soothingly on the shoulder. And what's happening at home at BDNK? Everything's fine, Ardeon. Everything has already passed. I was able to collapse the entrance, and now the Dark Ones won't be able to get into the metro anymore. We're saved. Let's go. And what happened here? Ardeon looked around, noticing with horror that the whole hall was filled with corpses. That other than his voice and Hunter's, not another sound could be heard. It doesn't matter. Hunter looked into his eyes and firmly. Into his eyes firmly. You shouldn't worry about it. He bent over and lifted his sack from the floor. A smoking army hand machine gun was lying in it. His cartridge belt was almost spent. The hunter moved forward and Artyom tried to keep step. Looking from side to side, he saw something that he hadn't noticed before. Several dark figures were hanging from a little bridge where Artyom had had his sentence read. Hunter said nothing and was taking long steps as though he had forgotten that Artyom could barely move. As much as Artyom tried, the distance between them was increasing all the time, and Artyom was afraid that Hunter would just go off, leaving him in this horrible station, which was covered in slippery and still warm blood, and where the only inhabitants were corpse. Do I really deserve this? Artyom thought. Is my life so much more important than the lives of all these people? No, he was glad to have been rescued. But all these people randomly scattered like bags and rags on the granite of the platform, side by side on the rails, left forever in the poses that Hunter's bullets had found them in. They all died so that he could live. Hunter had made this exchange with such ease just as though he had sacrificed some minor chess figures to safeguard one of the most important pieces. He was just a player, and the Metro was the chessboard, and all the figures were his because he was playing the game with, with himself. But here was the question. Was Artyom such an important piece to the game that all these people had to perish for his preservation? Henceforth, the blood that was flowing along the cold granite would probably pulse in his veins too. It was like he had drunk it, extracted it from others for his existence. Would he now, now he would never be warm again. Artyom, with effort, ran forward a bit in order to catch up with Hunter and to ask if he would ever become warm again or would he even at the hottest fireside stay this cold and melancholy, melancholy, like an icy winter's night in a far-flung semi-station. The hunter was far in the distance. Maybe it was because Artyom didn't manage to catch him, no, to catch him up. Maybe it was because Artyom didn't manage to catch up with him that hunter descended onto the tracks and rushed into the tunnel with the agility of an animal. His movements seemed to Artyom like the movements of a dog, no, a rat. Oh, God. Are you a rat? The terrible idea tore from Artyom's mouth. 
He was frightened by what he'd said. No, can't he answered. You're the rat. You're the rat. Cowardly rat. Cowardly rat. Someone repeated it just above his ear and spat fertility. Uh, brutally. Artyom shook his head but immediately regretted it. Now, thanks to his sharp movements, the aching, blunt pain of his body had exploded. He lost control of his limbs and started to stumble forward. Then he rested his burning forehead on something cool and metallic. The surface was ribbed and it pressed on his skin unpleasantly, but it cooled his inflamed flesh and Artyom froze in that position for a time. Not having the strength to make any further decisions, he caught his breath and carefully tried to open his left eye a little bit. He sat on the floor, his forehead against a lattice of some sort. It went up to the ceiling and filled the space on both sides of the low and narrow arch. He was facing the hall, and there were paths behind him, all the nearest arches opposite him, as far as he could see, were turned into cages, too. There were a few people sitting in each of them. This station was exactly the opposite of the station where he had been sentenced to death. That one was utterly graceful, light, airy, spacious, with transparent columns, wide and high arches. Despite the gloomy lighting and the inscriptions and drawings covering the walls, it was like a banquet hall compared with this one. Here, everything was oppressive and scary. There was a low, rounded ceiling, like in the tunnels. It was barely twice a man's height, or height. There were massive, rough columns, each of which was much wider than the arches that cut across between them. The ceiling of the arches was so close to the ground that he could have reached up and touched it, were it not for the fact that his hands were tied with wire behind his back. Apart from Artyom, there were another two people in the cell. One was lying on the ground with his face buried in a heap of rags, and he was squatting, leaning against the marble wall, watching Artyom with lively curiosity. There were two strong men in camouflage and berets patrolling the length of the cages, one of whom had a big dog on a leash, and he would scold it from time to time. Day, it seemed, had woken Artyom. It had been a dream. It had been a dream. He had a dream. He, he had dreamed, dreamt it all. He had dreamt it all. They were going to hang him. What time is it? He muttered, only slightly moving his inflamed tongue and looking sideways at the black-eyed man. Half past nine, the man answered willingly, pronouncing his words with the same accent that Artyom had heard at Katai Gurad. Instead of O, they said A, and instead of Y, they said A. And then he added, in the evening, half past nine, two and a half hours until twelve, and five hours before, before the procedure. Seven and a half hours. And while he was thinking, counting time was already flying past. Once Artyom had tried to imagine what would, what should a person feel and think in the face of death the night before his execution? Fear. Hatred. For the executioner. Regret. But he was empty inside. 
His heart was thumping hard in his breast. His temples were throbbing. Blood slowly accumulated in his mouth until he swallowed. The blood had the taste of rusty iron. Or was it that wet iron had the taste of fresh blood? They would hang him. They would kill him. He would cease to exist. He couldn't imagine it. Couldn't take it on board. Everyone knows that death is unavoidable. Death was a part of daily life in the metro. But it was, it was always seemed that nothing unfortunate would happen to you. That the bullets would fly past you. The disease would skip you. Death of old age was a slow affair, so you needed to think about it. You can't live in constant awareness of your mortality. You had to forget about it. And though these thoughts came to you anyway, you had to drive them away, to smother them. Otherwise, they could take root in your consciousness, and they would make your life a misery. You can't think about the fact that you'll die. Otherwise, you might go mad. There's only one thing that can save a man from madness, and that's uncertainty. The life of someone who has been sentenced to death is different from the life of the normal person in only one way. The one knows exactly when he will die. The regular person is in the dark about it. And, the consequent, and consequently, it seems he can live forever, even though it's entirely possible that he could be killed in a catastrophic event and fall in a catastrophic event the following day. Death isn't frightening by itself. What's frightening is expecting it.